The thought of judgment can be a troublesome thing. I'm sure when we think about God's judgment, some of us, our minds might go back to things that we know that are part of our life, maybe part of our past, maybe things in our life that we shudder about. And we have a definite sense, you know, God has built eternity into our hearts. There's a definite sense in which we will be held accountable, but we fear the thought of it because God has also placed his law into our hearts. And we know that we're lawbreakers. And so we, we have a sense within us that, that one day all of these things are going to be brought to the light. In fact, that's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. He said this, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Think about that for a second. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I don't know about you, but that, that can send um, chills up my spine to think about that reality. Apparently, just before the death of actor W.C. Fields, W.C. Fields was a famous actor in the first half of the 20th century, uh, W.C. Fields had no interest in the things of the Lord. He was an atheist. And um, a friend of his went to visit him in the hospital, and he found him thumbing through a Bible. And the friend was really surprised to see W.C. Fields doing that. And so he said, what are you doing with that Bible in your hands? And W.C. Fields says, uh, I'm looking for the loopholes. <laughs> I'm not sure how many of you have ever thought about it that way. That's what, he, that's what he was doing. He was looking for the loopholes in the Bible because he realized that his day of reckoning was going to come. Well, um, starting in chapter 4, after Paul spends the first three chapters looking at uh, doctrine, he now turns to practical matters, practical matters of the Christian life. And he deals with the matter of sexual purity. And then we talked about how he dealt with the matter of brotherly love. And last time he cleared up misconceptions about what would happen to those who had died before the return of Christ. And finally, this time he's dealing with the questions about those who will be alive when the Lord returns. And specifically, their question about the final judgment. And so... It's important that as we read these verses that Paul is assuring them and assuring us as a result of that we need not fear the judgment since our judge is also our savior. We need not fear the judgment since our judge is also our savior. That is if we know Christ, if we have him as our savior. And so uh, Paul deals with this by dealing with a couple of issues. First of all, he addresses the timing of Christ's return, and secondly, he addresses the judgment that will follow. So the first thing we look at is the timing of Christ's return, the timing of Christ's return. Now, um, as we know, over the course of history, over the course of time, there are always prophets, false prophets who are popping up and saying they know when the Lord is going to return. We could, we could trace this all the way back to the, the first century, but there have been a few notable examples for instance, um, in 1666, Europeans were convinced that the Lord was going to come back that year because 666 is the mark of the beast. 
And because 666 is the mark of the beast, of course, he's going to come back in 1666. Well, uh, what happened in that year was there was a great fire that occurred in London, the Great Fire of London, and uh, it, it, uh, it, it burned 87 churches and 1,300 homes, and people were sure that, that this was a prelude to the Lord returning, but time elapsed, and the year went by, and nothing happened. And then about 140 years later, in, in 1806, in Leeds, England, there was an incredible phenomenon. There was a hen in that city that was laying eggs. And the eggs had written on them, Christ is coming soon. And um, the end is nigh. And so people, they went in. This was just such a phenomena. Everybody had to go to this particular farm and see what was happening. And, uh, and so uh, it turns out that they spotted ink on the farmer's fingers. The, the hen was laying the eggs. He was riding on the, on the eggs. And then he was reinserting the eggs into the hen. And then the hen was laying them again. Now, that sounds pretty gross. I see a lot of people shaking their head. Um, when I shared that story with Faith, she did not want me to tell it. But um, that's, that really happened. And then, and then we, we know from, from our own time, you think about uh, Harold Camping. How many of you remember who Harold Camping was? American Family Radio. And Harold Camping uh, had made this prediction, I think no less than 12 times in his lifetime, he made the prediction that the Lord was coming back. And so, um, so in 1992, I believe he wrote a book, 1994, question mark. And then in, in, uh, he predicted that the Lord was going to come back May 21st. We have an image of that. Many of you may remember that. May 21st, 2011. I remember my, my son was playing Little League. And uh, there were kids on his team who I'm pretty sure never darkened the door of a church. But I, I could hear them in the dugout that day talking about the fact that he was, he was saying that the Lord was coming back that day. And they were wondering if they were going to make it through their baseball game before the Lord was going to come. Well... As you know, Harold Camping's prediction was wrong. And so he recalculated it to October 21st, 2011. And the days went by. And as we know, the Lord didn't come back. And so there are always people out there willing to hawk a few books or to get a little bit of attention by predicting the Lord's return. However, the truth of the matter is, is that no one knows. Paul begins in verse 1, he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. The reason why is because Paul obviously clearly told them what Jesus had already said in Matthew 24, 36 to 39. Those verses that we already read this morning, they say this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so uh, no one knows, no one knows exactly when the Lord is going to return. If anybody tells you that they know when the Lord is going to return, you know that they're wrong. One thing we could tell you back in 2011, one thing you knew, 
that while we don't know the day or the hour when the Lord is returning, we could, we could tell you that the day and the hour he was not returning was either on May 21st or October 21st, 2011. That was one thing we knew for sure once that prediction was made and there was this mass hysteria that was surrounding it. If Jesus didn't know the date of his return, the time of his return, Harold Camping sure doesn't know, and no one else who claims to know knows either. So uh, the, the Apostle Paul gives us two metaphors to help us understand the nature of Christ's return. First of all, it says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And there are few things that are more surprising, I'm sure, than being asleep in your home and, and in a deep sleep and then awaking with an intruder in your house. Now, um, I can imagine that it would have been, it would have been a lot, lot uh, uh, more terrifying to live in those days because remember, they didn't have alarm systems, they didn't have cameras, they didn't have sophisticated lock systems, they didn't have a lot of the things that we have in our day and age. And so uh, it would have been easier, I would imagine, for an intruder to go into a home at night and break in and steal. Well, Jesus compares this to the timing of the Lord's return for people in the world, for people who don't know him. Imagine going into a nice restful sleep. The people of that day will be saying there is peace and security. There's peace and security. They will be living in perfect harmony with the world and the world systems, and for them it will be peace and security. And then suddenly a total surprise will happen. Destruction, it says in verse 3, will come upon them. Now, when we remember thieves' approach to, to coming in and breaking in, they usually don't send a postcard, right, in advance? Say, oh, I'm going to be there on such and such a date at such and such a time, and I'm going to do such and such a thing. No, they, 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 don't, they don't do it that way. They don't, they don't warn us. They don't let us know. They don't, they don't uh, knock on the door and make sure that somebody's home and awake before they come over. No, it's, it's, it's sudden. It's shocking. They, they come by stealth. I remember um, just as I was, I was thinking about this this week and preparing, I, I saw a study that was done by an insurance company where they interviewed burglars on things that they look for in a, in a home that they want to break into. One thing they don't want is a big dog <laughs> barking on the other side of the door. They, they want to avoid places that have alarms if they can. And if they think someone's inside, if they hear a television on or something like that, they tend to avoid those places. Why? Because, because they know that somebody's awake. Somebody there. Somebody's waiting. But when it comes to the Lord's return and it comes to people who don't know him, well, it's going to be a surprise. It's going to be a shock. As in the days before the flood, Noah prepared while the whole world went on its way as it always had. We read in Genesis 7, 21 to 23, it says there, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures, that swam on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. So we see very clearly that just as judgment came upon that generation living in Noah's day, so judgment will come upon this world and our sin. 
But just as, just as the judgment didn't surprise Noah, it's not going to surprise us who know Christ. And we're going to talk about that in a mi- minute. The, the second metaphor that he uses is also found in verse 3. He says, the Lord's return will come like sudden destruction. It will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now, there's three things that we know about labor pains. I only know by observation. But uh, three things we know about labor pains. Number one, they are they're unpredictable. Sometimes labor pains will come upon a mom and they'll be kind of false labor pains. Uh, they're unpredictable when they're going to happen. You have a general idea about the timing of it, but you just don't know exactly when they're going to take place. The second thing we know about labor pains is that they're inevitable. Once a baby's on the way, those labor pains are going to eventually come. It's going to happen. And number three, we know that when those labor pains do come, they are unstoppable. They are unstoppable. Remember when um, Faith was pregnant with our first and those really hard contractions came on. We were in the hospital and I see Faith getting up and starting to walk out of the door. What are you doing, honey? She, she thought that if she left the hospital, somehow the contractions would just stop. That's not how it worked. <laughs> yeah, it's unstoppable. When, when God's judgment comes, it is unstoppable. So in essence, God's judgment will come, and when it does, there is no escape. Thankfully, though, we will not be taken by surprise if we are in Christ. He says in verses 4 through 7, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Three things we know will make it tough on a thief. If we find ourselves in the light and awake and sober, if that's the way we're living, if that's what our life is reflective of, we're going to be ready when the Lord returns, and it's not going to surprise us in the way it will surprise people of the world who are compared to those who are drunk, who are asleep, and in the dark. The truth of the matter is, is that one of the reasons why Christians will be ready when the Lord comes is is because we are living in the last days, and we know this. Uh, It seems as if I I always meet Christians who believe that the Lord is coming uh, in their lifetime. And and I can say that since I was a small child. I have known Christians who believe that the Lord was coming in their lifetime. And this is the way it has always been for all Christians. And the reason for this is because we're living in the last days. We're living in the last times. In fact, John says this. The Apostle John says this in 1 John 2.18. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, this is a very interesting thing. We all know that prior to the return of the Lord, there is going to be an Antichrist. We know that that Antichrist is going to be a penultimate Antichrist or an ultimate Antichrist. And we know that there's going to be a false prophet. But, but even before then, there are other types of Antichrist that point to the ultimate Antichrist. And 
for people as they go through times of persecution, many believe that that might be the one. I'll give you some examples of this. He says, the Apostle John says this in 1 John 4, 1. He talks about false prophets are in the world. He says this, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Even though there's going to be an ultimate false prophet before the return of the Lord, there are many false prophets already in the world deceiving people. Or the Antichrist, or the Antichrist. Uh, as, as we notice in 1 John 4, 3, it says this, The spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and is now in the world already. And so, um, how does this work? How does this work? Well, it's very interesting. If you look in the book of Revelation, you will see that the Apostle John prepares us for this in his description of the Antichrist. And it's a, it's a fascinating description. Now remember, Revelation 1.8 says this about Jesus. It says that Jesus is, and you've heard this before, is the one who is and who was and is to come, right? Jesus is and he was and he is to come. Jesus is always the same forever. But the Antichrist is given a different description. And it's slightly different. The Antichrist mimics Christ. It tells us in Revelation 17, 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. Do you get that? Jesus is the one who is and who was and who is to come. The Antichrist is the one who is, who was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. Then we continue on and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written on the book of life, in the book of life, from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was... I should have underlined this too. And it is not, and is not, and is to come. So the beast was, and is not, and is to come. Jesus is, and was, and is to come. Do you notice the difference? Well, how is it that the beast was, and is not, and is to come? It's because there are antichrist figures in every generation. And uh, in the first century, they believed it was Nero. But it didn't turn out to be Nero. But Nero was a type of the Antichrist. Nero's the one who killed Paul and killed Peter. And then, um, and then as we, we think about the sands of time, as we look out over the sands of time, we've had other kinds of Antichrist figures who have, who, have, who have set out to destroy God's people and set out to destroy the church. You think about somebody like Hitler, Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler's plan was to destroy the church in Germany. He wanted to replace every cross with a swastika. He wanted to replace every Bible with a copy of Mein Kampf. He wanted to destroy the church in Germany. He wanted to destroy the church uh, across the world. And so he was an antichrist type figure. You think about a guy like Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin was no friend of the church. Joseph Stalin was an atheist who wanted to eradicate Christianity. He was an antichrist type figure. We think about it in our own time. Think about uh, ISIS and what they were doing, wiping out Christians in Syria and wiping out Christians in Iraq and other parts of the world. You see, the Antichrist is one who was and is not and is to come. Meaning that, that the Antichrist rises up, an Antichrist figure rises up, then he's struck with a mortal blow, then he, then he seems to die, but then he, he, he arrives somewhere else. It's like playing whack-a-mole. 
right? Playing whack-a-mole, you go, to, you go to maybe a bowling alley and they've got whack-a-mole there and the little mole comes up and you whack it and then another one comes up and you whack it and then it's, and, and that's sort of like how, how the spirit of the Antichrist works until finally it will culminate in a final Antichrist. But we recognize that we're living in the last days. We see the vestiges of the last days. And so Christians are always ready for that because we have our spiritual sensitivities up and we can see that. So we have this, we have this picture. We'll be ready. We'll be awake. We'll be, we are sober. We're in the light. And so how does an awake, sober Christian live in the light in the last days? We notice this in verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, when, when Paul looked at the Christian life during these last days that we're, we're living in, he looked at it in terms of spiritual warfare. Um, we, we, we notice that the, the, the warfare that we engage in, though, as Christians is not a physical warfare. It's not a, it's not, it's not a battle of flesh and blood. But it's against the spiritual forces against, of, of this dark age. And so how do, we, how do we combat a spiritual enemy? Well, he uses, a, uses an example that he uses in another place in Ephesians 6. But he, he shortens it. He condenses it here. Well, he, he thinks about a Roman soldier. What do they wear? They wear a breastplate and a helmet. And these were two of the most prominent parts of the Roman uniform. And so he tells us that we put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. The word there for put on, the, the, the word is in the aorist tense, which means it happens at some point in the past. It has to do with the Christian life. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we come, God gives us this faith as a gift, and as a consequence of this gift of faith, he transforms our lives from the inside out, and the marker of that life of that faith is love and it's hope. See, we're not, we're not like the, the, those who live in the world who, who, who live uh, feeling like the, the chopping block is ready to fall down on their head because of sin that's in their lives. No, we find mercy and we find grace in Christ. We find hope that our Redeemer lives and that he's coming for us. In fact, we, we see this um, picture and we're going to discuss it a little bit later, so I'll, I'll leave that there for a moment. But um, a few years ago, I had a conversation with a guy who was raised in a communist country who saw persecution against Christians. And he asked me, how do Christians stand up when people persecute you? What is your method of fighting? And all I could do was take him to Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 43 and then reading to 47. And we're going to cut out a, a verse in there. But, but this, is, this is what Jesus said. This, Jesus said, this is the way we fight. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So what is Jesus telling us here? That we don't fight with the conventional types of warfare that the world uses. We don't fight with our fists. No, we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us. And those who, and those who berate and mock us, what do we do? We bless them. I remember him walking away shaking his head. That'll never work. 
But I want you to know, it is, it is that ethic, it is that way of life that has changed the world. Where you just had a small group of Christians who were gathered together at the, first century, at the end of the first century. And because of that, empires fell. And because of that, the name of Jesus is, is preached and proclaimed from one part of the world to the other and all the continents. And we have the church of Jesus Christ growing all over Asia and all over Africa. In the various parts of the world, and the reason for that is because God is the one who empowers his gospel, and all we do is we obey him, and he fulfills that in our midst. And, and though the world thinks that those tactics will never work, the reason they work is because God is the one who empowers them. God is the one who makes our message and his message go forward, and so he calls us just to live as faithful stewards of the life that he's given us. Well, just want to mention three reasons why. You as a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, should never fear the final judgment. There are three reasons why Christians should never fear the final judgment. And we find them in verses 9 and 10. Uh, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The first reason is this. First reason is this. Why we should not fear the final judgment as believers. Because we can live securely in his love for us. We can live securely in his love for us. The problem with these Thessalonian believers was they remembered their past and we talked about it. The Thessalonian believers were, were from a background of, of great paganism, right? It was a, it was a, it was a land in which... Um, people engaged in, in all kinds of immoral, immorality, temple prostitution. They had all of these things in their past, all of these things that they thought about, and they were waiting for the other shoe to drop. You see, God has placed his law into our hearts. He's given us a conscience. And we know when we violated that law, we know that we deserve punishment. And so there are many Christians, and I've run into many Christians who have told me this, but they, when they look back at their past, they think about the things that they have done, and they're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. They will say, God has blessed me with this family. God has blessed me with these friends. God has blessed me in so many ways. And sometimes I feel like God is just setting me up so that he can bring down upon me the punishment that I really deserve. Have you ever been there? Have you ever thought like that? That's how these Christians were thinking about their own life. But notice what he says. For God has not destined us for wrath, in verse 9, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 tells us that prior to us coming to Christ, we were children of wrath. We were destined for wrath. But something happened, something changed, and the question is, what is that? Well, Paul explains it in another place, in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to the beginning of 25. He says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift. The word, therefore, justification has to do with legal court. In the ancient world, if you were brought into court and you were tried for something, if the judges stood up and they said you were justified, that's like um, a jury standing up and saying that you're innocent. 
So God says we are justified. He declares us righteousness. And we are declared righteous by his grace as a gift. So we cannot earn it. We cannot earn salvation. We, there's, there's, there's not enough works that we could do to ever earn it. It only is as a gift. And, and how does the gift come? Well, Christ had to earn it for us. It says it by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is ours in Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That is a big word, the word propitiation. The word simply means that Jesus satisfied the wrath that was required for our sin. Jesus satisfied in his death on the cross the demands that were required for the sins that we have committed. That's an amazing thing. That is an amazing truth. Yes, we were deserving of wrath. Yes, we were children of wrath. Yet when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we now put our trust in one who went to the cross for us, who died in our stead so that through faith in him, the wrath of God was removed from us so that we might walk in freedom. There's a story about an about a, a old lady who was struggling to pay her rent. And she had run out of money. She could not pay for electricity. She could not pay for heat. And she was just there in her apartment. And all she had was, uh, all she had was uh, uh, three candles left. And that's what gave her light. And she was sitting by herself in her apartment. She had already gotten threatening letters from her landlord. And she was, she was waiting to be put out. Then one night, as she's sitting there with one candle lit huddled around that candle in that place, the only shelter she had, she heard a knock on the door. She was sure that the knock on the door was from the landlord. And so she blew out her candle and she pretended not to be in the house and she waited. And he was there a long time. And she waited and waited and waited and finally, whoever it was that was at the door left, she relit the candle and she felt like she dodged a bullet. Well, it was uh, within a few weeks she ended up ha uh, being evicted from her apartment. And, and she was in some place and she met a friend. And the friend asked her, were you at your home on some particular night? And she said, yes. And, she, and, uh, and the friend said, well, did you hear a knock at the door? And she said, yes. And the friend said, well, why didn't you open up the door? And she said, well, I was afraid. I was afraid that, that uh, I would be evicted that night, and I was afraid that it was the landlord, and I was afraid that I would be sent out of my home. And then the friend said, well, that was a person that they both knew who had gone to her house with enough money to pay off all of her rent and pay off all of her bills so that she could stay in the house, but she refused to open the door. The beautiful thing about the gospel messages is that Jesus has done everything that is necessary to secure our salvation. And as a result of that, we don't have to wait for the other shoe to drop in our life. We serve a Savior who loves us and who cares for us. And oh, how we're waiting. Oh, when is God going to unleash his fury and his wrath upon us? The, 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 the gospel story is, is that God 
In order to spare us from his wrath and his fury, he unleashed it on his son. So that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. What an amazing gift. Second thing we notice is that his death on the cross is proof of his love for us. His death on the cross is proof of his love for us. What what Christ has done for us is not some cosmic joke. It isn't some cosmic joke. I I, I love how Paul just has these these, um, three words at the beginning of of verse, uh, verse 10. He sums it all up beautifully. He simply says that Jesus died for us. Think about that for a second. You who are waiting for the other shoe to drop. Do you think that God would go to all that trouble? Do you think Jesus would go to a cross just so, and bear your wrath and pay for your sin, just so that he could, he could mete out every pound of flesh in you later? No, he wouldn't do that. In fact, in fact, we are children of God if we come to him in faith in him. We, we are part of his family. And, and when we go through those times of difficulty that God allows into our life, God has a purpose in those difficulties. And that's to discipline us like a loving father disciplines us so that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. And so God disciplines us, but he punished his son in our stead. And so this isn't some kind of game that's being played where God is waiting now to come down on us. No, God came down on his son, Jesus Christ, in our stead. And because of that, we, as those who follow Jesus, need not fear his judgment. And third, he saved us because he wants to live with us forever. He saved us because he wants to live with us forever. We read in verse 10, he says, so that whether we are awake, that is, alive at the return of Christ, or asleep, whether we are dead, we might live with him. There were a group of uh, pioneers who made their way out west during the homesteading period of time in in our nation's history. And as they were going out west, uh, there was one particular group, and they were going very slowly. They were being pulled by a by a, uh, they're, they're part of a wagon train. They'd be pulled by, a, by oxen. And uh, on one particular day, they crossed over a river, and then they had gone on perhaps another day or so. And all of a sudden, in the far distant west, they could see smoke arising and a, and a large fire rising. And, and the people began to be concerned, and they started to think about turning back and going back, but they could see that the, that the fire was moving faster than the wagon train could move. And there was a palpable sense among the people that, that they were all going to die and they were going to die in flames. And so as, the, as they could see this grass fire spreading and coming toward them more and more quickly and was being fed by the winds, all of a sudden one of the, one of the men in the group had an idea. He decided that they would burn a patch around the place that they were, st- that they were at. And so they began to set fire to the grasslands around them. And as they set the fires, they were putting them out and setting the fires and putting them out. And they made the circle bigger and bigger till eventually it could, it, could, it could cover all of them. And just before the flames arrived in their direction, a, a little girl, she shouted out in terror. And she said to the man, she said, Are you sure that we shall not all be burned up? And the man replied, My child, 
The flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has already been. Brothers and sisters, if you fear that final judgment of Christ, I want you to know that if you are hidden in Christ, you have nothing to fear because you are in the one where the flames have already been. Jesus went to the cross and he died on the cross for your sin. He died on the cross to take away your shame, your guilt, all of these things. And when you are hidden in Christ, when you're hidden in God, your, your sins are taken away. He has he removed them from you and so that you have nothing to fear. And so as Christians, what we must do is hide ourselves in Christ and trust him and trust him in his goodness and trust him in the truth of his word, understanding that when we are in Christ, we rest secure. He is a faithful God. He is a merciful God. He's a loving God. And our only hope, our true hope is found in Jesus. It is not a loophole. He had to die in our place. Justice was served, but justice was served on Christ so that through him, we might escape that judgment. That's the love of the living God. But maybe you're here today and you have never come to a place where you have trusted in Christ. Maybe you're not in the one who has absorbed the wrath of God in your stead. Well, if we come to that place and and we have not trusted Christ, then we will have to stand before God on our own merit and we know that our sins have cut us off from God. We know we have a conscience that, that, that burns in our heart where we know that we have violated God's commands. We know that we have dishonored him. We know that we have turned our backs on him. If that's you, if you know that you're in that place, turn to him. Turn to him and live. He will not cast you out. No one who puts their trust in him will be ashamed. Because he's a faithful God. He's a God who saves. And he's a God who wants to live with you forever. Would you turn to him this day and live? And experience the redemption that only he can give. It begins that day, that hour that you come to know him. Do you know him?